Welcome, everybody. We've, had a, we've got a few new faces here today, so I'm glad you guys are here. Um, we'll, we'll go ahead and get in. As, as many of you guys know, uh, one of us, between me and my wife, is a little bit more active on social media. Um, the more active one actually has a business that she runs using Instagram as a platform. And so in a lot of ways, we're thankful for social media. Um, it's a helpful tool. It helps people get connected. Uh, there's a lot of information that can be passed on through social media. New City Church is active on social media. Now, I saw an article this week. Um, <laughs> I, this was fascinating to me. There was uh, a girl or a lady. She was dressed up in an angel costume, and she was taking a picture of a live, taking a picture with a live bear, hugging a bear, like a real live bear. And photographers would come and pay $760 a piece to take a picture of this girl in an angel costume with the live bear. It's, it's uh, you know, social media, it's affecting the world, right? It's, it's affecting the world. Over the past several years, sociologists, I've become a little bit of a history buff uh, with social media this week. Sociologists have coined this phrase, it's called the selfie phenomenon, okay? Fun fact, the first selfie was in 1839. Um, a guy took a picture of himself uh, in front of his store, and it took about two minutes for this picture to, to actually come, for it to actually work. Uh, the selfie became common in 2004, uh, using the hashtag selfie on the platform called Flickr. It became uh, even more common with the development of the iPhone and the retina display. Right, everyone. Um, was allowed at that point to have high-quality photos on their phone because of this new, this new uh, invention. But then, the selfie became popular with this new startup in 2010 called Instagram. Uh, and another fun fact, the, the selfie stick, it, uh, the first selfie stick was in 1925, um, and it became popular in 2014. So now you're all history buffs on social media. Um, you can thank me later. So to be clear here, there's nothing innately wrong with a selfie, okay? A lot of times, it's the best way to take a picture when you don't have someone else to take it, right? It's just a very convenient way to take a picture. And a lot of times, it's a fun way to capture a moment. But there's no, there's no doubt about it. It affects us. Sociologists have found that users who base their self-worth on their appearance tend to share more photos online. Studies have shown that those who engage in photo sharing, specifically photos of themselves, are at a higher risk of struggling with internal negative ideals that lead to self-objectification, disassociation, self-harm, depression, and falling short of their potential, being crippled by comparison. So I, I think we all get this in some way, even if we don't share photos online of ourselves. You know, we, we all tend to struggle with the same sort of concept in some way. You know, we, we often worry what other people think of us. Uh, we can have sort, certain insecurities in our lives that um, can often cripple us in certain ways. Or, you know, we could just be innately selfish people. Um, even, in our, even in the Christian life, you know, we have this, this little idea of uh, having God as our own personal genie, so to speak, where we want God to do certain things, and when we don't get what we ask, we get really upset. But there's no, there's no doubt about it. A self Focused life can cripple us, misguide us, and it can be destructive. So today in Psalm 33, our attention is turned away from ourself. 
And our attention is turned uh, to the Lord, is turned to God. It goes, Psalm 33, it goes against the grain of what the world tells us, um, that this world is about us. Everything in this world is, is, pointing us, is pointing back to us, saying this world is about us. And this is, in a lot of ways, this is like a wake-up call for us. Um, because this, this world isn't about us, right? This is God's world, we're just kind of living in it. And so that's what we're going to see today. You know, God, God has much better plans for our lives. God did not create us for ourselves. God created us for Him. And so, Psalm 33 makes a case for this today. Rather than a self-focused life, and this is our big idea for today, Psalm 33 shows us the beauty of a God-centered life. Psalm 33 leads us to worship. So, our self-focused, selfie world, so to speak, it, it often puts us at the center of the picture. You know, we've got a selfie, and it's, it puts us at the, at, the, at, the, at the center of the picture. But what, what we'll see today is that Psalm 33, it puts God at the center of the picture. Okay? So what often happens is that when we read the Bible, we put ourselves at the center of God's story. We come to the Bible, and we make ourselves the main character. We can't be mistaken, because Psalm 33, it redirects us. It redirects us, and it puts God at the center of the story. God is at the center of the picture. He's at the center of the story. And this is, like I said already, this is God's world. We're just living in it. So this, this all kind of leads us to the question, well, if this is God's world, then what are we supposed to do? Like, where, what is our part in the story? And so we have to ask, like, where do we fit in? So we're going to see two, two points today. It's going to be God's responsibility, right? It's, gonna, it's God's responsibility. It's God's place in the picture, God's place in the story. And the second is going to be our responsibility. We're going to spend most of our time going through this first idea of God's responsibility. Um, and in, inside of God's responsibility, there's four attributes that we're going to see in Psalm 33. Four attributes about God. Um, I'm going to read through this entire psalm first, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk more about some of these points, okay? Read, follow, follow along with me. Psalm 33, verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with lyre. Make melody to him with harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as their heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in the steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. So a few things 
to point out about this psalm specifically. Uh, you know, the, many have said that Psalm 33 is a continuation of Psalm 32. So we went through Psalm 30, Psalm 32, 31 two weeks ago, 32 last week. So if you think of Psalm 31 and 32, th- Psalm 31 is like he's at a really low point. He's at the like he's kind of in the valley. He's in, he's in a low point of his life. And then Psalm 30, Psalm 32 specifically, there's like a sense of turning back towards God. He's, there's a sense of repentance that's happening. And so he's, he's in the bottom of the valley, but he's starting to like come back up the mountain. And then in Psalm 33, you know, he's starting, we've kind of caught our breath, right? We've got, a, we've got a wind of energy and we're starting to run up the mountain. And so I started to think of this psalm um, like an Oreo cookie, okay? Um, I love Oreo cookies, uh, one of my favorite cookies of all time. On the outside of on the outside, the chocolate, man's responsibility, right? On the inside, the good stuff, right, is God's responsibility. And then I thought, well, I actually like the, the chocolate a little bit more than the cream. So I didn't think this really worked that well. So then I started thinking, well, maybe a sandwich would be really good. You know, the good stuff's in the middle. But then the bread's kind of boring on the outside, and the the bread in this psalm is not really boring at all, so there's a lot of really good stuff that we're going to see. So, regardless, you kind of get the idea. On the, the, first two verse, the first three verses and the, the last three verses, that's man's responsibility. At the very center is God's responsibility. So we're going we're gonna to go through this psalm. I, I think, like most people, most people eat an Oreo cookie, you, t- you eat the center first, right? You, you eat the center and then you eat the cookie last. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at God's responsibility. We're going to look at the middle part first. Okay? And just another little fun fact. I'm full of fun facts today. Uh, Nabisco, they came out with uh, this Oreo. It's called the Most Stuffed Oreo. We're all going to want Oreos by the time we leave here today. Okay? Um, and this is actually a triple stuffed Oreo. Okay? Not, not, double, not, not like a regular Oreo, Oreo, not a double stuffed Oreo, but triple stuffed Oreo. The cookie is massive, and so this psalm is a lot like a, a, a triple stuffed Oreo. It's just full of God's, of God's responsibility, okay? So here we go. When we look at God's responsibility, when we look at what God does, David's taking a picture of God, okay? He's showing us who he is, and there's four parts to this picture. There's four parts of God's character, four parts of what God does, and here they are. God speaks, specifically, we're going to see that God speaks in verses 4 and 9. God counsels, verses 10 and 12. God watches, verses 10 and 15, and also 18. And then God delivers. So these are all, these are all specific reasons about God of why we should live a God-centered life and not a self-centered life. Okay, let's look at the first one. God speaks, verses 4 to 9. And notice the theme here of God's word, the power of God's voice. We saw this a few weeks ago in Psalm 29. So starting in verse 4, this is what it says. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his works is done as faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and he puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. So David's not only talking about God's word, he's talking you know, about God speaking, you know, about this idea that God's word is powerful, but specifically when God speaks, it gives great power, but it also can be trusted. 
So God is a speaking God that speaks with power, but also can be trusted. Look, look at what it says about the trustworthiness of God's word. Okay? God's word is upright, verse 4. God's word is coming from someone who, you know, in verse 4 it says, whose work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice, verse 5. He's, he's full of steadfast love, verse 5. Now, God's word has a history to back all this up. Right? It says, uh, his word made the heavens... And it's host with his breath in verse 6. That's what we saw. God's word has power, the power you know, over great water. In verse 7 it says, for the sea to obey him. Right? This should cause us to be amazed by God. And when you see that, when we're amazed by God, look at verse 8. It says, be in awe of God. Verse 9, we see, from, we see in verse 9 that God spoke and he commanded the world into existence. Okay, so God's word here has a lot of power, and we see that it's trustworthy, but it also comes from a trustworthy source. Okay? It comes from a faithful and a powerful source. Not only is it trustworthy and powerful, but we know that because of Jesus, God's word became personal. Right? It became personal, and it speaks to us. God speaks to us through his word. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God comes in, comes in and he speaks to us through, through his word. Hebrews 4.12 says, God's word is living and active. Okay? God's not cold. God's not far off. God, God cares for us. Right? He cares for us through His Word. God's Word alone is enough reason to live a God-centered life rather than a self-centered life. I'll say this. God's Word keeps Christ at the center of our life. So, if we're continually in the book that speaks of God's power, that speaks of His trustworthiness, that speaks of His character... If we're in this book that reminds us of the gospel, that reminds us of who Christ is, our enemy is going to have a much harder time bringing us down and putting our attention on ourselves. when everything in God's word, it points to God. Right? It can't, if we're in God's word, it cannot allow us to live a self-centered life because everything in his word is pointing to God. I'll say this. God's word is evidence of God's kindness in our life. Let's be people that long to be in his word that crave it, that are guided by it, that are directed by it, that we would trust it, that we would find, it would be our source of satisfaction, that God's word would fuel us, that it would give us peace and hope because his word is powerful and it's trustworthy. It, it, it takes the attention off of ourself and it puts it back on God. Let's run to his word. Let's look at verses 10 and 12. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. And here we see God's second attribute. We see that God counsels. God counsels, verses 10 and 12. Look what it says. It says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has, he has chosen as his heritage. When it says, uh, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, um, this can be translated here, the word counsel there can be tra translated as advice. The, the NIV, it actually says plans. So verses 10 and 11, this, this can either be really, what we see here, it can either be really, really hard for us, kind of a hard pill to swallow, or it can be really encouraging. So I, I hope this is encouraging for us. And, and the, the point of this, these two verses is to show that both, both men and God, we make plans but it's not our plans that get established. It's God's plans that get established. Okay? Nations and governments make plans, but God's plan get established. 
Tribes and groups of people makes plan, make plans, but it's God's plans that get established. Corporations and churches and groups of people makes plans, but it's God's plans that get established. Okay? And, 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 the, and what's fun about this is that God holds it all in, all in his hands. He holds all of it in his hands. And this should give us great hope. Because the God that created the world with his breath, he, he holds all the nations and he holds the tribes and he holds our lives in his hands. And God's plans can't be thwarted. Can't be changed. Listen, we do not serve a weak God that is out of control. We don't. We serve a powerful God who makes plans and fulfills his plans. Okay? In verse 10, he says, he frustrates the plans of his people. <laughs> Peoples here are tribes and nations. And there's like a group of people. He's, he's frustrating the plans of the people. And at first glance, it's like, well, this isn't really encouraging uh, it doesn't seem very nice, God frustrating something. Like that seems like it, it kind of, we have to stop and think about what he's, going, what he's saying here because it, God making people angry or mad and frustrating, that just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem very loving and kind, but let's, let's stop and think about it. Let's think about the history of, of God's people, the history of Israel, what has kind of happened. on. Like, let's just look at what he's done. There's, there's two incidents, two stories I want us to think about that help shape two different perspectives of how God frustrates the point. How, how God frustrates. The first is um, Israel, when they were under the rule and the reign of Egypt. Okay? They were under the rule of uh, Pharaoh, who was a tyrant ruler. Um, you know, he, what did God do? He really frustrated Egypt, specifically. I mean, he brought frogs and plagues and bugs and, and turned the water to blood. I mean, God just frustrated them. And then... When they were getting away, God opened up the sea for Israel to run through it, and then what happens? Israel gets through it, and then the water collapses, on it, collapses and Egypt gets really frustrated. Right? The water collapses on Egypt. God frustrated it. In God's, in God's great plan, you know, this is, that's what he did. Right? He frustrated Egypt. I mean, think about how annoying that had to be, for Egypt specifically. I mean, they've got their slaves, they're running away, and God lets them get, get away, right? He frustrates them. But then, <laughs> it's very clear throughout the Bible that God frustrates the plans of his enemies, specifically. Egypt was an enemy of God at this point, right? God frustrated the plans of his enemies and, because God's plan always prevails over his enemies, and this should give us great hope that God frustrates the plans of his enemies. I mean, today, as followers of Christ, as God's people, you know, through, through his death and resurrection on the cross, when we put our trust in him, we're no longer enemies of God, but we're people of God. And our enemy, Satan, is also God's enemy. And we know that God frustrates the plans of his enemies. Right? One of the great truths of the gospel is that God frustrated the plans of Satan, his enemy, when Jesus went to the cross. He frustrated him when Jesus went to the cross. Because listen, Satan is no longer our ruler. Christ is our ruler. But it's not, it's not a one-time deal. God continues to frustrate the plans of the enemy. How so? Well, he, helps, he continues to frustrate the enemy by helping us battle sin. He frustrates the enemy when sin is dealt with. Right? When, we, when, we, when, when sin is conquered. When the power of the cross continues to help us fight sin... God helps us to run from sin, and it, and it frustrates the enemy. 
Because God is daily fighting for us. He's daily fighting for his people. We have, a great ho- we have great confidence. We have a great hope. This is really exciting stuff. But there's something that David also talks about that may not seem as exciting. Because we all, if we look at the other story that I wanted to talk about, the second story, if we also know the other, some other sides of God's history of Israel, we can't, we can't sweep this under the rug. Because we said God frustrates the plans of his enemy, but there's, that, that's not real... Real fun, but at the, at the surface level, we have to look at the, at the second layer because God also frustrates the plans of his people. And we know this to be true because of the, the stories in the Bible. The second story, I mean, God's people spent 40 years in the desert. God's people specifically spent 40 years in the dev- desert. That doesn't seem real fun and exciting. It seems a little frustrating. And what does the Bible say that they did? They grumbled. A lot. Like, a lot. They kept grumbling over and over. I mean, God kept providing food for them. Like, food would come down from, from, from heaven, called manna, and they would go and they would eat it, and then it would just disappear. And what, what would happen to it? It would rot. I mean, just think about it. They, they try to plan, you know, they would, they would try and plan out their meal for the week. They would do some meal prepping, so to speak, from this manna from heaven. And what would happen? When they meal prep, they made plans, it would rot, right? It's, that's not real fun. And, and this is at the heart of these verses. God frustrated the plans of his people because he wanted his people to trust him. Not for them to trust their own plans. Now, I get a sense that many of us in here have, in the past few weeks and months, have made a few plans. Um, maybe they didn't go as planned, Living situations, job situations, family situations, whatever it is. There's some sort of plan that we had that didn't, hasn't quite worked out. And at some point, I'm sure that it has been a little frustrating. Wondering, like, God, what are you, what are you doing? Like, just, just questioning or wondering. And there's a sense of help, right? We, we just want some help. But what if in this moment or in those moments, what if God wanted to do something different in us? is far greater and far better than anything we would have ever planned. When we're in those frustrating deserts, and don't, don't miss, don't miss the sweet opportunity to be in complete dependence on God. Because what if, what if the Lord in your desert, so to speak, in your, frustrating, in your frustrating situation while we're grumbling, what if God's plan during this time is to grow your trust in Him? One of the things that we see over and over again in the life of Jesus was that his plans were often changed and redirected. He always yielded to the plans of his Father. I mean, even, even right before he went to the cross, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he went to the cross, we, this is, he said, Jesus, if, this is your, if, this, if it's your will, take this cup from me. Jesus would have liked for God to have a different plan. Jesus didn't want, in that moment... He would have liked for God to have a different plan. A plan that didn't send him to the cross, but he went anyways because he trusted God. He knew that God had a much better plan and he trusted it. Jesus went to the cross in agony, but he did it in joyful submission to the Father. May we be a people that live in great, in great trust of the Lord's plans, not our plans. 
When I, when I think of planning specifically for, for New City Church, there's a lot of planning involved in trying to start a church. Um, even, for, I mean, all, there's all, ongoing planning all the time. Um, I hope and pray that we would be a people that are yielded to God's plans, not stuck on our own plans. Yes, we plan. Yes, we make strategy. Yes, we make dreams and visions and goals. But at the end of the day, God's going to do what God's going to do. Last summer, you know, I was, I was reading through the book of Acts, and I'll never forget this. This is a, very, this is a big turning point, um, just in my, own, in my own heart. It was about July. We knew we were going to be planning a church, wondering what was going to happen, you know, a little anxious. Um, and, and I'll never forget uh, kind of being stopped in my tracks, going through Acts. It was in Acts 5. This is what it said, Acts 5.38. said, if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it, if it is of God you will not be able to overthrow them. Or else you may, be, may even be found fighting against God. Basically, if it's of men, it will fail. It's, if, it's, if it's of God, it cannot be stopped. My prayer for New City Church is that we would be a people that do what God wants to do and nothing less and nothing more. Um, we, we, don't, we don't know what, what God is going to do, but if it's from God, it cannot be stopped. And we can summarize all this in this way. A God-centered life trusts in God's plan, and a self-centered life trusts in their own plans. God's plans are better than our plans. May we trust in His plans. These next few verses should give us great hope in trusting the Lord's plan, specifically verses 10 to 15, and also verse 18. This is our third attribute. God watches, verses 10 to 15. Notice the watching or seeing nature of God in these next few verses. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Then down in verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. This should give us great peace. Because... If God's plans are the plans that take precedent over our plans, we should be encouraged that God knows everything. He sees everything. God sees the things that we do not see. God knows and sees our past. God knows and sees our present, and he also sees our future. I, I love how the psalm builds on itself. It builds on this, this, this psalm in particular. It shows his power at the beginning of the psalm, the trustworthiness of his word, the trustworthiness of his character. Then we see that this God is trustworthy and powerful, that he holds the whole world in his hands, that the winds and the waves obey him, that, that, God is the, that, that God is the one who is making our plans, who is directing our life. And the king who is directing our life, who is good and trustworthy and powerful, he sees everything. He watches everything. God has ultimate vision. I mean, just think about this. There are a billion things that are happening all around us at all times. God sees it all. Every bit of it. He knows it all. And in his ultimate vision, he's protecting us. And he's guiding us. And he's leading us and changing us according to his plans. Not our plans, but his plans. God... God is seeing things that we do not see. He's changing us in ways that we do not know we need to be changed. He's preparing us for things we don't know we need to be prepared for. When we keep our life focused on ourselves, we have a limited vision. 
But when our life is focused on the Lord, we're trusting in a God-sized vision. You see, a self-focused life is constantly looking at themselves, worried about their life, trusting as their protector, their director. But when we look to God, when we're yielded to His ways and not our ways, when our life becomes about God and ourself, we're still being cared for. Our life still matters. The circumstances around us still matter. But we're trusting that God is over it, not us. We're trusting that God is the one who is, has all of this in His hands, not us. And there's great freedom in this. I'll, I'll say this. A life surrendered to Jesus is a life of freedom, not slavery. May we be a people that look to the Lord and trust in His God-sized vision, and may we be a people that find great freedom in our surrender to Jesus in His plans, not our plans. Look at verse 16 and 19. Specifically, the saving and the rescuing and the delivering nature of God, our fourth attribute, God delivers, verses 16 and 19. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Verse 16 and 17, the psalmist is saying, apart, apart from popular opinion, the king's army, it can't save him. Right? The, the war horse, it's not strong enough to deliver him. The war horse that they hope in, it won't work. It's a false hope. It can't rescue them. It can't rescue us. The psalmist is saying, listen, you can't rescue yourself. There's nothing in you that can save yourself. There's nothing you've built, nobody around you, that can rescue you. The psalmist is saying, don't, don't trust in yourself. Your self-focused life, it will fail you. It will deceive you, and it will not rescue you. Don't trust in your spouse because your spouse at some time, at some point, will fail you. Don't trust in your education because at some point your, your, your job credentials, your education, it they will not satisfy your income, your stability, your career, your kids, your friends, your future, where you live, what you eat, what you do. They all fall short. They're all false hopes. But what does the psalmist say gives us hope? Specifically in verse 18, God says his steadfast love. That's what gives hope. But more specifically, the psalmist says in verse 19, he says that he may deliver their soul from death. And keep them alive in the famine. We hope in a God. We hope in God's steadfast love, but more specifically, we hope in God's steadfast love that delivers. Even more specifically, we hope in God's steadfast love that delivers our souls from death. What we cling to, what we hope in, is the cross. That's our, that's our hope. Because God left his throne. God came down to earth. He didn't come down in a great army. He didn't come on a great stallion or a war horse. He didn't come as a warrior in great strength. He came as a baby. Now, I've seen babies. I had, I've had a few. Well, my wife had a few. I've raised a few. They're not exactly gladiator material, okay? God humbled himself, and he took on human form. 
Right? He, came in the, he came as a baby, and he lived, he grew up, and he lived the life that we could not live, and he died a criminal's death, the death that we deserved. He took our sin, he took our penalty, so that when we surrender to Jesus, we no longer have to live a self-centered life that destroys us. But, so we can live the life that we were created to live. That's the gospel. That's what we are saved to. We are saved to God through the cross with a purpose. That's the gospel. There's something specific in verse 19 that I want to draw our attention to. And I think verse 19 kind of hints at. Look at verse 19 again. It says that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in the famine. There's two parts to this verse. It says that he may deliver their soul from death. And we know from the Bible, we know that the wages of sin is death. There's a penalty for our sin. But what often happens in the Christian world or in the Christian life is that we stop there. We get that we're freed from the penalty of sin. We're freed from death, so to speak. We get eternal life. We're saved. But what often is missed in the gospel is, is what shows up in the second half of verse 19. It says, and keep them alive in the famine. He's saying, there's a source of life now for everyday life. We need the gospel every day. Not just for eternal life, but we need the gospel for everyday life. I'll say it this way. We need the gospel for eternal life and everyday life. We're not just freed from the penalty of sin. We're freed from the power of sin. If we only talk about being freed from the, the penalty of sin, the gospel is partial and it's, and it's incomplete. Because brothers and sisters, because of, the, because of the gospel, sin is no longer your ruler. It has no power over you. The gospel proclaims that sin is not your master. Jesus is your master. Drawing from the language in verse 19, sin cannot starve us in the famine. Sin cannot squinch us. It has no power. But through the power of the cross, Jesus protects us, feeds us, and watches over us because Jesus keeps us alive in the famine. What happens, though, where the confusion comes in is that we still see the presence of sin. We think that it, and we think that it has power. Don't be fooled. Sin has no power over you. It has no power. Think of, think of sin as a prisoner in a jail cell. Okay? It's locked up. It has no power. But we keep going back to visit it. But it's still there. It's yelling at us. It's mocking us. It's deceiving us. In the jail cell where it has no power, it's wooing us to come in. To come into the cell with it. But don't be fooled. This prisoner we call sin, it has no power over you. It has no power. Don't run to the prison cell of sin. The gospel calls us to run to Jesus. When we run to Jesus, we're running away from the power of sin and running to the power of, cross, of the cross. And through the gospel, Jesus has delivered us from the penalty of sin. He's delivered us from the power of sin and one day as followers of Christ we have a great hope that one day we will be freed from the presence of sin the jail cell will be crushed 
You see, the problem with a self-centered life is that a self-centered life always leads us back to the jail cell. When we make our life at the center of the story, we're walking on a path that always leads us back to the jail cell. When our attention is on Christ, and I want to close with this. This is our second point. When our attention is on Christ, it reminds us and leads us to our responsibility. The outside of the Oreo. The psalmist draws us on the front and back of the psalm. Our responsibility as Christians is not to work hard, to do more, to try harder. Our responsibility as Christians, as it says in verses 1 to 3, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. And then at the end in verses 20 and 22, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. If God's responsibility is to speak and to counsel and to watch and deliver, our responsibility is to care. I mean, if God's responsibility is to care and protect and direct and to plan and implement and work and save, if God has all the power, if God has all the strength, if God is all-knowing, if God is all-seeing, if God is perfectly righteous, if God is perfectly faithful and perfectly justice, as Psalm 33 shows us, why in the world would we make our response to focus our attention? on ourself. Our responsibility as we read in Psalm 33 is to worship and sing and wait and trust and to be glad in the gospel. That's our responsibility. Our responsibility is to run to Jesus. Verse 21 says, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name, the name of Jesus. Our responsibility is to trust and to run to Jesus. A true God-centered life is a life that trusts in Jesus. When we have a God-centered life that trusts in Jesus, our hearts can be glad, we can sing, and we can praise the one who has delivered us with his steadfast love. May we sing and praise today as people that trust in a God that speaks in power, that counsels in wisdom, that watches in great care, and delivers in his steadfast love. God does all the work. Our job is to worship Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful that the gospel calls us to worship. That it allows us to worship. There's a freedom that we can find in knowing that God is the one who saves. That God is the one that plans. That God is the one that holds all the power. That God is trustworthy. And our response is to know that we sing and and praise the Lord, that we trust and we wait. Father, we're thankful for the cross. We're thankful for how you have worked in our lives through the gospel. We pray that you will do far more than we can ever ask or imagine through the gospel. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.